Today, a special episode of Return to Reason, where knowledge and wisdom intersect. Welcome everyone. My guest today is Dr. Julie Panessi. Now listen to this. She is Master's in Philosophy, Bioethics from University of Toronto, Diploma in Ethics from Kennedy Institute of Ethics from the Kennedy Institute of Ethics, Georgetown University. Uh, 2021, she refused to comply with Huron College and University's COVID vaccine mandate and was put on unpaid leave, ending a 20-year career. Uh, she did a video that went viral explaining how it's Ethics 101 not to coerce an employee to take a vaccine. It's good to have you with me, Julie. Absolutely. Lovely to be here. Now, you wrote this book, My Choice. Why did you write the book? Writing the book gave me the chance to flesh out a fuller story, a fuller explanation of my own position and, and you know, why I didn't personally comply with the mandates. And then also uh, some, more, some more general, broader arguments about why I think they are a problem uh, in, in more general terms. It seems like we all have to surrender our rights and freedoms to protect the healthcare system. Can you comment on that? Well, I mean, I think the narrative has changed a bit, hasn't it? Because initially it was to protect each other. So the, I think the initial language surrounding the mandates prior to a few months ago was, uh, you know, we're all in this together and do your part and you have to get vaccinated in order to prevent transmission. And then once it came out that, oh, no, wait, these vaccines aren't preventing transmission. And even the director of the CDC acknowledged that and, and, and Fauci acknowledged that uh, the narrative shifted. It had to shift and it really shift to an argument about scarce healthcare resources, right? Which is that, well, we are all in it together, but it's not to prevent transmission of this virus. It's so that you don't get terribly ill and over overburden our already overburdened healthcare system. But you raise a really good question. I mean, even if, and I think there are, um, you know, scientific and epidemiological problems with that claim, it's not clear that our healthcare system is overburdened or that vaccinating the population is the best way of addressing that. But even if you could make the argument that those two things are true, it's not clear that sacrificing our charter rights is the best way to accomplish uh, those ends, to accomplish relieving pressure from the healthcare system, right? So it's kind of like we've, um, you know, we've politicized healthcare to the point now where our healthcare um, industry goals or expectations are imposing themselves on our most fundamental rights as Canadians. Yeah, that's so true. I think that if, if people could hear truth and the whole truth and not be censored, the majority of people would make wise decisions for themselves rather than want a government to make their decisions for them. You know, this is a question I think about a lot. I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, I think you're right that there is this, um, there, there are concerns about fact and transparency. These are epistemological concerns, right? So what is the reality of the situation? And is our government and our mainstream media portraying the reality to us accurately? There are those questions. But then even if for the sake of argument, we did know more than we know now. Would we make different choices? Um, do people desire to be um, free 
over have so, over having some element of of comfort in belonging to the group and i'm not sure if you'd asked me a year ago i would have said of course there's nothing a person wants more a, a rational person wants more than to be free to be able to be the author of his or her own life um but in the course of the last year, watching human behavior, watching certain narratives develop, and I've talked to a number of different uh, psychiatrists and psychologists and exploring the topic of fear and collectivism and groupthink and group mentality and actually um, belonging to a group having a certain group identity, being able to outsource your own personal thinking to that group. There, there are strong psychological reasons for doing that. And um, I think we're seeing that in play in society now more than ever before in Canadian history anyway. Don't you think that this bombardment of fear uh, that just kept coming at us from every leader going, it came from government, it came yeah. from mainstream media, it came from healthcare, and that when you ramp up the fear, um, that that changes a lot. If they wouldn't have ramped up the fear, if they would Absolutely. have just cautiously, what do you think about that? Yeah, I think one of the things that fear does is it um, it's, it, it makes us myopic in our thinking mm -hmm. for one thing, uh, and it's paralyzing. So in the first respect, when you are, are terrified of something, you have a kind of tunnel vision that's focused only on that thing. Uh, and, and one thing, um, I mean, there's a very interesting article. Oh, it's months old now. Um, I remember Trish Woods on her podcast was exploring this um, about the, the true health risks to adolescents and children, for example, and that children are at far greater risk from things like meningitis and certain um, uh, forms of cancer and, and other viruses than they are from COVID. And yet, because the public messaging is so fear-oriented around, around COVID, which poses statistically insignificant risk to, um, to young people, but that's all we can see that's all we can think about and when you market in that way to people who care about children when you market that way to their mothers especially right now we have this whole culture of women parents but I think especially women are especially vulnerable to this kind of fear-oriented marketing from the drug companies and from our government and from our healthcare system which is that you don't you want to protect your child you don't want what happened to this other person, never mind that that other person is 75 and has a number of comorbidities, right? You don't want to ha have happened to that person, happen to your child. And by the way, you're a bad parent if you let that happen, right? So I think we've seen this kind of myopic focus on COVID as the only you know, real, rational, significant threat to our lives. And that kind of myopia or, or singular focus has, has made us paralyzed um, to cope with anything else in our lives, but also paralyzed to be able to think rationally and clearly and balance the risk that pose, COVID does pose to us relative to risks from other things and relative to uh, benefits from living other ways in, in, more, in, in ways that don't involve as much fear. Yeah, um, I think that's very true. I think that it's a leader's job to bring forth information, to try as hard as they can to minimize the fear yeah. uh, and help, you know, give them the information to make decisions. Because the more security that people want in our country, the more rights they have to give up. And, yeah. and I think so we... 
it's so interesting. I was just going to say that this, um, this fear is acting as the motivator to bring us together. That's what the marketing wants to achieve. That's what the nudge unit in the Privy Council is trying to achieve. If we make people afraid enough, they can be coerced to do what we want. We can manipulate their behavior. But if you look at other times in recent history and times of crisis, and I can't help but think about um, the messaging uh, that was going on in, in the UK during the Second World War, it was completely the opposite right? It was keep calm and carry on. I mean, that slogan has, I mean, you can go into pretty much any kitchenware store now and still find it on a tea towel because it has lingered in our collective history so much. And it was arguably quite successful. You know, I mean, not only did they have victory, but I think it really, it, it succeeded at unifying people in a way that was much less uh, psychologically and psychologically destructive and also much less destructive to the bonds that are supposed to hold citizens to one another. Yeah, so true. You know, I was talking with uh, Brian Peckford who helped put together um, mm -hmm. a lot of what we're talking about when it comes to rights and freedoms. And uh, he very clearly said that the rights of the individual are more important than group rights and that the greatest thing the group has is their individual rights, mm -hmm. or whoever wins over the, the group is gonna just run roughshod, is my words now, over everyone else. Talk to that a little bit. It's so interesting because, um, you know, working in academic ethics for a long time, um, the language of ethics is really the language of individual rights. It is the language, it is the sort of ethical framework that supported a decades long history of my body, my choice that we don't hear about anymore very conveniently because it doesn't support the mandating position, right? Um, and most, I would argue, most uh, of our bioethics principles and codes at both the national and international level um, are rights-based, they're not collective based. And, it, and it's certainly true that when it comes to public health, you have to balance those rights of the individual against the rights of the collective. But what we've seen over the last couple of years is a complete uh, abolition of and a complete ignoring of individual rights as though they don't matter at all. And I think um, Mr. Peckford is exactly right that I mean, one of the things he's right about is that there's an oddness to talking about group rights. And I don't want to say that they don't exist at all, but conceptually they're harder to understand because when you talk about something like um, the right to life, liberty, and protection of the person, it's easier to understand conceptually how an individual person has a right to life because we have um, a biological life that starts when we're born and ends at the termination of our life whenever we die, right? What does it mean for a group to have a right to life? What does it mean for a group to have a right to liberty or protection of that group of persons? And so if for no other reason, I think that we're not clear about what these group rights really are. And so to put all of our stock in them and to act as though as Canadians with a charter, we no longer protect rights of the individual is blind and I think incredibly destructive, not just to individuals, but to the future and the fabric of our country. Well, when we talk about individual rights as opposed to group rights, um, mm -hmm. I still think that 
you know, this thought of the best thing that group has is individual rights. Now, individual rights rub against each other and, you know, and they can't hurt others. So there's a complexity to it for sure, don't you think? But there's still got to be the best form of government. Yeah, it's, it, it is very complex. I agree. And there's a reason. Um, I don't want to make it seem like there's never a reason for thinking that a group has rights um, or responsibilities. On the right. responsibility side, there's a really robust um, uh, literature in moral and political philosophy about collective responsibility. And that came to be largely because we see that the harms that a group, like a corporation, like an oil company, for example, can do to others or to the environment when they when individuals are able to hide behind the protected walls of, of an entity like that, a group right. entity. Um, and so if we're going to say that there's good reason that a group has responsibilities of the group, right, collective responsibilities, then usually rights and responsibilities go hand in hand. So it makes sense to say that the group has some rights, but there's a question there about whether or not the rights and responsibilities of a group are anything over and above just the sum of the rights and responsibilities of the individuals who are part of that group. And again, there's a lot of debate over whether or not that's the case. But what I would want to make very clear is that that is not a settled debate, I wouldn't say right? In the academic literature, um, in Canadian jurisprudence, as far as I understand it, right? Um, we can talk about, I mean, Health Canada can put out its do your part, we're all in it together slogans all they want. It doesn't do away with our charter, right? Very and thank true. goodness uh, Brian Peckford is around to remind us of that. Yes. You know, you, there, there's so many people across our country that have suffered, really suffered, careers gone, um, suicide is up. Yeah. And this, yeah. the cost of mandates and the things that have gone on is brutal. And I know that you faced your own. Can you give us a quick look at your story and what took place in your life? Yeah, I mean, I was, um, I taught ethics and ancient philosophy at Huron College, which is one of the uh, affiliate colleges at Western University. I was there for about eight years and uh, the, they instituted a COVID policy last August and part of that policy, so you had to mask in the classroom and then you also had to uh, provide proof of vaccination in order to be, um, in order not just to be on campus, but also to maintain your status as an instructor or a student or a staff member, right? Um, I objected both to, um, the implementation of a vaccine mandate, which our president, Alan Shepard, was very adamant about. But I also, and perhaps more fundamentally, objected to the disclosure of personal medical information. And I made those objections public, and then I was terminated with cause for doing so. Um, and I, I'm sure, you know, you know, I made this video, and at the end of that video, I kind of broke down, and, and since that happened, so many people have written, not just from across Canada, but all over the world, they're so kind, but they've written to say, I'm so sorry about what happened to you and losing their job. And I try to, you know, I'm, I'm grateful, but I try to correct everyone who says that and say that this is so much bigger than the loss of an individual. I mean, that that is devastating in some sense, but what's really um, 
what overtakes you these days, I find emotionally, is that this is all our country is made of now. I thought we were better than this. I thought we had a safer place in which to raise our families. I thought we could count on our government, our law enforcement. I thought we could count on each other more than this. And now, you know, you mention all these different harms that come from the mandates. And very often in, you know, in, in, in medical ethics, especially, we're trying to balance benefits and harms of various kinds. And to do a responsible, comprehensive analysis of the harms that can come from a particular decision it, it's incumbent upon you to look at all of the various harms that are different in degree and in kind. And it seems like now all we can focus on are the harms that come from people get, possibly getting very, very sick from COVID. That's the only kind of harm we can see, the only one that seems to get any kind of traction with our government officials or in the media. Um, so if you die from COVID, your death is considered to be horrendous and society better mobilize all of its efforts to prevent that. But if you die from suicide because of the lockdowns and the mandates, and my goodness, you know, people who, I mean, I, I have a family to be home with, I have friends, I'm very fortunate in that respect, but people who went into um, the pandemic situation alone and have spent the last two years alone, uh, adolescents who are just sort of reaching um, you know, the cusp of their, their young life, their young adult life, which should be the most exciting, free, supported time in their lives, arguably. I mean, this has been devastating for them. You mentioned a 400% increase in suicidality. I remember uh, back in October, McMaster reported, I think it was a 300% increase in um, suicidal um, admissions and, and visits in their um, emergency room at their children's hospital. You know, I mean, this, these are harms that also matter. And they matter as, you know, the, the, the death from COVID is not worse than death from suicide, is it? You no. know, I mean, I mean, death is death and it's bad and it matters to the people who love you and it matters that your life has ended earlier than it may have needed to. Um, what might be worse is that your death resulted from avoidable public health measures rather than some natural cause, right? Mm. I, but I think that the point I'm trying to make is that we don't seem to be very, we don't seem to be very good at having nuanced conversations about all of the different harms that are happening today. And we seem to have a real double standard about um, harms and illnesses and deaths. And I, I guess what I would try to encourage, and I wrote about this in the book that, you know, uh, mental health matters as much as physical health. Um, deaths from suicide matter as much as deaths from COVID um, and the harms that we're doing to our children. I mean, I was just watching a video before we came on here about children um, trying to rip their masks off in preschool. These are three and four-year-olds. Um, they don't understand why they have to wear them. There's no scientific evidence that supports that they do any good at all. And these poor children are being, um, I mean, two years, if you're three now, you know, two thirds of your life has been spent in this very odd state. It's one thing if you're an adult and you can sort of rationalize what life was like before and how we might get out of this and why these measures are 
arguably temporary. But if you're a three-year-old or a two-year-old who has spent her whole life in this state, I don't think we're going to know for a very long time um, what the extent of those psychological harms will be. And I don't think we're uptaking that concern in appropriate ways, politically, legally, uh, and journalistically. Are Canadians too trusting? Well, that is one of the arguments, isn't it? Too trusting, too kind, too compliant. Mm. You talk Paging. to Americans now and they'll say, you know, what are you doing? Get, <laughs> you know, get out of your chairs and do something about this. And a number of us are. Right. Because mm. no, in your book, as, as I was going through it, you encouraged people to be skeptical. Of, uh, you just made a list, paragraph after paragraph of... <laughs> And, and, and I agree with you. It's like we used to enjoy good debate, get a couple people with different opinions uh, who are sharp and, and, and well-researched and, and get them on a table and make a TV show out of it. And people would just watch and enjoy this back and forth. And there is no way that is happening on any kind of topic that is meaningful. You no, know, for the last, what has it been a couple of weeks now, I think we've seen much more of that from our MPs uh, in the House. And it's been really rigorous. And it's been, um, well, just been more rigor, let me say, than there has yeah. been, I think, over the last number of years. And it is entertaining. And I think it does make you feel like you're more connected to the political process, regardless of what side you're on. Uh, it makes it feel like um, MPs are not just sitting back. I mean, I used to watch these things and um, so often MPs would just sort of sit back and twiddle their thumbs and look on their phones and wait for the next person. I say in the book, right, that we should try to engage in argument uh, with people, not for the purpose of waiting to pounce on them so that we can win a point, but with the disposition that we might actually learn something, you know, if we can approach people with curiosity. Um, and that doesn't mean being weak spined or not being committed no. to your own position, but I think it does mean that you have a principle of revisability, according to which if someone provides information that you didn't know, or an argument that seems compelling to you, that you might be willing to change your view given that. Right. And not to do that is just to be obstinate and, and yeah. not rational. And yeah. I think not a very good citizen. An old proverb says that the first person always sounds right until you hear the second person bring out an opposing view. There's so much to learn uh, when we just have healthy dialogue and uh, yeah. conflict. I mean, literally, I don't mean that in a negative way, but just like difference. And, and debate. Talk. Mm -hmm. yeah, debate, that's a better word. I was just going to say this Emergencies Act that, that our Prime Minister has just invoked, um, he could have walked down the hill and had a chat. Yep. You were there with your daughter, apparently in Ottawa, you had mentioned. Um, what, what did it look like to you? Well, now I've not been there for three weeks now, I guess. I was there uh, the day after most of the trucks arrived. So I was there for three days. Um, so just keeping that in mind, because things I'm not sure how things have changed since then. But when I was there, um, it was electric, not in a bad way. I mean, I just found... I've honestly been feeling pretty pessimistic about the state of our country lately and wondering where all the patriotic Canadians are and, yeah. you know, the people that are committed to um, who, who put us on the map for being, you know, arguably the most enviable country in the world. Like, how did that happen? Where are all these people? And they were in Ottawa, you know, um, so many people were so they're friendly, they're supportive. Um, the truckers are happy. 
they're really happy. You know, they were, uh, when I was there, it was very cold. There was slush on the sidewalks that was kind of freezing. It was really slippery and they were out um, shoveling the sidewalks. So people who were visiting the city could pass easily. They were collecting garbage. They're wearing flags, they're singing, they're dancing. Um, I gave a a speech up on the the flatbed truck. There were thousands of people there. Um, it was peaceful, supportive, happy. Um, they were, you know, chanting freedom or liberté, or it was lovely. It was beautiful, and I, I was so. Ha- a friend of mine, uh, we were chatting after. She said, "You sound so happy." I said, "I was because it felt so hopeful. It felt like finally, you know, we might be getting a, a breakthrough, a way out of this incredibly oppressive." not just government, it's, I mean, I, I like to blame Trudeau as much as the next person, don't, don't worry, but that happened somehow. There's a culture that gave rise to this government that's plaguing us right now. And there's a sickness to that, I think. And it's a sickness that's been growing in our country for a long time. And one of the I don't know if it's a symptom or a cause, but part of that sickness is a kind of apathy. You know, when we've just kind of sat back and said, not my problem, not my business, I'm going to outsource my thinking to whoever wants to do it for me. Um, And I don't want to get involved and I don't want to say anything controversial and I'm not willing to put myself on the line. And um, the, the as we've reached a threshold of the people in our population who are willing to do that, we have entrenched the loss of our ability to speak our minds and to protect ourselves. And now I think we're finding ourselves with a um, a prime minister and his deputy prime minister who are totally out of step with the fabric of, of Canada and with who we are and other countries are mocking us. Yeah, that's true. I think that um, so many people have found hope, like you say, um, in this seemingly simple thing of driving, uh, you know, their trucks in a convoy to just say, and a lot of people, well, I don't have to say a lot, but a number of people that I spoke with, it's like they had this, it's just too late, we may as well give up. And I think there seemed to be this, like, um, this bombarding of stats that weren't even accurate as if everybody's on board, everybody's good with it, it must be just you. It's not. So you felt alone. You felt isolated. And uh, then to see, like we had, we had news teams with the convoy and then arrive with them in Ottawa. And uh, the, to see the people line up by the thousands, and it was town after town, all down across Canada. I just, I can feel chills as you're saying this. I, um, I also went to one of the convoy stops uh, two, three days before they arrived in, in Ottawa. And it was the same thing. And I can't tell you what it felt like to be in a crowd of maskless, unafraid, happy, supportive people. Yeah, that's so true. You know, in talking with people, people begin to have this opinion that it's too late, meaning, you know, Mm -hmm. there's either a silver bullet for this that fixes everything or, Mm -hmm. You know, the, this, this evil wins. And in talking with constitutional lawyers and different experts and interviewing them and just speaking with them on camera and off camera, um, 
they're just, they're going, no, it's not the way it is. We as people are waking up and guess what? We can't ever stop being watchmen on the wall. We can't ever stop saying, this is a true north, strong and free, and this experiment you know, needs to continue. So we must teach it to our children. Uh, it must be in our schools, our universities. You know, everyone must take seriously how beautiful this country is and that it's got a lot of stuff to figure out. But we all can agree, whatever political you know, affiliation we are, that we need it moving towards freedom. I'd rather be free and have problems than to not be free and have problems. I'll take the problems that go with freedom and, and sort that stuff out. And uh, I was talking with a uh, television uh, person who's running a TV station in Costa Rica, and she said, we all began to wake up across, um, a, it's a Latino channel, and it's the largest one in the world. And she said, we all began to wake up when Canadians rose up. She said, when Canadians got upset, because they were dealing with, right now as well, the QR codes, the mandates, and it weren't all in place. They were kind of ways behind us, as were a lot of Latino countries. And she said, when you guys begin to say enough, it made all of us begin to take more, because they were just going about their life. It's all going to work itself out. And they took a serious look at it. Well, you know, I think we are... Um we're seeing these mandates lift. We're seeing plans put into place to lift them, but it's not time to pop the champagne cork no. yet because these, this is just, um, you know, as I said before, symptomatic of a much yeah. deeper problem. It is. Yeah. And I think it's also lifting these mandates. I worry is a bit of a red herring, um, because we're, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to grant you this over here, but we're going to slide things like, digital ID and citizenship in yep. over here. Um, and I, you know, in speaking with the truckers there, I mean, I hardly talked with any of them about vaccines, some of them, sure, but that that's a, that's a, a smaller part of this bigger issue to do with freedom. And I think they're saying on behalf of, for themselves and on behalf of so many of us that just what you said, which is that we don't want to live in the cage. We don't want a life of comfort if it can even give us that in the cage and a life of blind compliance. We would rather live in the wild, if that's what it takes, with our freedom, sorting out the messiness between ourselves and have our freedom and the right to be authors of our own lives. Yeah. And so this, you know, people have asked, often ask me, what is this convoy about? And I usually say something like that. It's about what it is to be a human being trying to live together with other human beings in a limited space. Yeah. We're trying to figure that out. But one thing we're saying is we don't want to be controlled by anyone. We don't so want to be true. monitored by anyone. We yeah. want our privacy. We want a our freedom. And we will work to get along and figure out what that looks like. You talked earlier about you know, rights sort of butting up against each other. And sure, that happens, absolutely. But we have worked on ways to finesse that and figure that out in the past. And it's never looked anything like blanket totalitarian mandates um, and a situation in which you are not allowed to ask questions about them. You're not allowed to have a contrary opinion. Canada has never looked like that before. No, I would I say this is the start of a journey. Like. This yeah. is the start of a journey of, like the old proverb, wake up the mighty men. 
uh, wake up the mighty women. There are leaders across this nation that if all of us together with the gifts and the abilities, uh, you know, the careers, the educations, whatever it is that we have that Canada needs, if people will just rise up, and this is, I like what you said, don't think this is the mandates as they slip in stuff in other areas. This is the start. And for the rest of our lives, every generation needs to be encouraged. We must get up and build freedom into all of our structures. Absolutely. And I think we have a responsibility as parents to raise our children to be critical thinkers, to be to be skeptical. That doesn't mean to be negative yeah. about everything. No. But it does no. mean that when we are presented with information, it's not just our right, but our responsibility to uh, intake that information and work on it and think about it and decide for ourselves if what we're hearing is true and, and, and right and good. And um, until, I mean, I think we, we've got an identity crisis in our country and probably in our world. Yes. And we need to figure out who we are and who we want to be and, and what is the best version of ourselves moving forward. And, and we can't just let someone else make those choices for us, right? What it is to be a person is to be, uh, is to make those choices for, for ourselves. And, and what it is to be a nation is to make those choices, um, you know, uh, in, in a conscious way, in a deliberate way. And so the lifting of, I mean, I saw Ford, you know, give the press conference, was it yesterday, where he said, uh, Canadians are tired of this and we need to lift the mandates by March 1st. Great. I'm glad he didn't make the opposite, sort of doubling down further entrenchment mm -hmm. speech. But uh, it's a bit incidental unless we see a broader ideological shift in how our government is formed and treats citizens in this country and how we treat each other. There has been a whole decline away from freedom that we find, I'm going to just use the word brutally, in our universities. I mean, to, you know, this, whatever yeah. you want to call it, uh, but where a whole country is drifting in that direction. It feels like we have to re-educate an entire nation about what it is they have and have been enjoying, and what is it? Well, this is something that I'm intimately acquainted with because I've taught uh, in some capacity young people in the sort of 17 to 21, 22 age group for, for 20 years. Um, and I really think we are experiencing now the effects largely of the give every kid a trophy generation, right? We have equalized everyone to the point where they no longer believe anything matters or that anything they do, any effort they exert will make a difference one way or the other. And ironically, at the same time, they're all perfectly entitled to everything. So we've created, and, and I don't mean to be unreasonably hard on our younger generation. I mean, we educated them. We instilled these virtues, if you wanna call them that. Um, and the truth is that we aren't, you know, there are fundamental equalities between us, but that doesn't mean we're all identical. No. You know, I and think I think we're better off if we recognize our differences, support each other with those differences. Um, and I mean, that's what true unity and inclusiveness is, not this homogenize everyone, follow the dictator approach to creating a country and a people. 
where there's true freedom, it's like the creativity, the ability to develop whatever giftedness is in you can rise up. Uh, but where you've got fear and control, then all you're doing is trying to exist rather than to, to really live. And it's kind of like that old statement, the age old statement that, you know, we've got rights and this new generation, they have the right to have what everybody else has mm -hmm. rather than the right to try the right you know the, the opportunity to go and build it and but i think we're seeing kind of a punctuated um revolt against that i mean it, it just um sort of a, an, an example is the, the flight away from mainstream journalism of some of the best journalists like Barry Weiss and Tara Henley and uh, people going to the Atlantic or other kinds of publications. You know, they're just saying, I'm not willing to play. I'm not willing to be a cog in that wheel anymore. Right. I, um, and I think, I don't think we've seen it in the professions as much because there's a very heavy hand uh, that, you know, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario um, is wielding, for example, uh, and in, in the legal profession as well. But I think we're going to see more professionals um, stand against their colleagues and their professions and say, this is enough. I'm not willing. I mean, what it is to be a professional is, is to be a good critical thinker. Right. As a lawyer, as a doctor, as a physiotherapist, whatever it is. Right. It's to be yeah. not just to be someone who follows rules well, but who is is trained in the art of critical thinking so that they can respond appropriately to new information and new cases as as they're presented to themselves. And I think we need to we need to stop this incredible focus on science and expertise. Science is important, granted, yeah. but science without critical thought is you know it, it, it's like an unwieldy weapon it, it has no structure no purpose no value you talk about in the book about experts and how that the word is used so loosely but that an expert is somebody who has gained this expertise not just through knowledge because you can gain knowledge i mean you can go on to any of the universities but it's through this experience of using it talk to me about that what did you mean by expert well, we, it's really interesting because when you start researching um you know who is considered to be an expert and what makes them so i think there are two interesting things we notice one is um being the kind of expert uh, that people listen to now means almost being knighted by a certain body or governing uh, collective, right? So um, Teresa Tam in Canada uh, has been knighted as an expert by our prime minister, right? And these experts have subject matter expertise, arguably, this expertise in a very narrow um you know, area of, of knowledge and interest. They might be uh, virologists, they might be uh, immunologists, they might, um, but that, I think we've made the mistake in thinking that that subject matter, matter expertise that's very narrow mm -hmm. um, necessarily gives them expertise across a broader uh, spectrum. So the mistake in thinking that someone who is an, an expert in immunology also understands the psychological and the economic costs of certain uh, public health measures that are 
immunologically based, right? So I think we have to be very careful. Yes. But this idea that we should trust the experts, um, maybe, maybe some people who are experts under certain circumstances, uh, but I certainly want to know who they are, what makes them an expert, why should I trust them, um, what successes have they had in the past, I want to know more things about their background, mm. and all of that is critical thinking, right? Yes. Uh, and I think we've seen a lot of reason to be dis distrustful of the experts now, right? The people who are so-called experts. I agree. I think wisdom is the application of knowledge. Mm. And so as we have all these linear uh, flows of knowledge, which is so needed, uh, we need wise leadership to pull this all together because decisions have to be made, uh, you know, whether it's got to do with countries, whether it's got to do with families, healthcare. And uh, I think the one thing that I'm excited about is that courage is contagious. And uh, as people begin to speak up, even starting with the truckers, I'm seeing more doctors, more scientists, people who have been canceled out. Uh, are, they're coming back around now. And people are saying, who is this person? This is who this person is because they never got a chance to enter into the mainstream uh, culture and to share. So thank you for doing that. It's so interesting to me, and I've said this before, but I think sometimes people get the impression that courage, courageous people lack fear because they ask questions that make me think what they're thinking is, well, why are you, you know, you seem to be so courageous. How did that happen? But I think the underlying assumption is, well, why are you not afraid like the rest of us? But true courage is, is proceeding not in the absence of fear, but moving through it. You know, so if you weren't afraid, you wouldn't need courage. Right. So there is no courageous person who isn't also afraid. It's just knowing how to, or learning how to manage that fear and having a certain kind of confidence about what it is that's causing that fear and why you're actually able to, to respond to it. Right. So true. Well, as we close, I want to just encourage everybody this book called My Choice that I've been referring to, written by Dr. Julie Panessi, um, has some great stuff in here that'll help you think critically. It'll help you to, you know, a lot of people have a lot of questions. And when you ask questions of experts, they just come back at you with more questions. And so it's great to hear uh, some of the thoughts and, and the critical thinking in this book. So I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and get this book, and it'll help you on this journey of discovering who you are, big issue, our identity, and then what our country is. So Julie, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely. It was a lovely chat, and keep doing what you're doing. It's so important. Thank you. Return to Reason is supported by our fans. We are not handcuffed by advertisers or shareholders. The need for media with integrity is more important than ever. Consider becoming a partner and fueling the unheard truth by visiting returntoreason.tv.